In our sermon series on the Psalms, we have arrived at Psalm 6. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You've heard that, I can only imagine, countless times in your life. And people sing Amazing Grace for all sorts of reasons nowadays. Uh, the original meaning of the hymn was quite remarkable. It was written by a guy named John Newton, who, before he was a Christian, before his conversion, he was an English slave trader in the late 1700s. John Newton, by his own words, was a deplorable seaman uh, before he put his faith in Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about John Newton in a little while. David, the king of Israel, um, he, his, this psalm, Psalm 6, is attributed to David. David, when he sinned, sinned big. David was one of those go big or go home type of guys. And, and there were a couple of times in his life where he, he sinned so remarkably that everything fell apart. Not only his family, his entire nation fell apart because of his sin, because of the decisions that he made, because of a string of decisions that he made. We're not sure what the context is to this psalm, but we know that's true about David in general. Here's the thing. People like David, uh, people like John Newton, people like the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, who was Saul of Tarsus, um, uh, all sorts of crazy things uh, about how wicked Paul was before he found Jesus, before Jesus found him, actually. The thing about people like this is as you read their post-conversion writings, they seem convinced of two things. First, that their sins were very great. But second, that God's forgiveness was even greater. And I want to ask you a question. How can you be sure, despite your own wretchedness? Because what did John Newton sing? Grace saved a wretch. You ever really thought about the fact that he called himself a wretch? How can you be sure despite your wretchedness, despite the truth about yourself, that you would be ashamed if other people knew? Okay, that's what I mean by wretchedness. How can you be sure that God forgives you? 
How can you be sure, despite the wretchedness about you that you don't want anybody knowing, that God would accept you? I hope you're going to see today from Psalm 6 that when your sin finally crushes you, God's love fully assures you. When you're finally at the end of the rope and you feel the full weight of your own sin, when you can't avoid it any longer, that is when God's love is the most precious and beautiful to you. So today I want to talk about the agony of sin, the sorrow of sin, and the death of sin. The agony of your sin, the sorrow of your sin, and the death of your sin. And I hope that we will find encouragement from this. David, as you read these words, David is in agony because of his sin. Sin. Psalm 6 is a prayer of a person who is tormented both physically and spiritually. Have you noticed that? He says in, in verses 2 and 3, be gracious to me. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. My bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. So whatever he's done, and we don't know what he's done here, but whatever it is, it's finally caught up with him. It's caught up with him in, in such a way that as you read verses 7 and 8, you see that even his enemies, because look, he's a king, even his enemies have cashed in on his mistakes, uh, like crafty politicians when uh, picking on one another's mistakes. You know, one politician says something, uh, says something careless to the media and, and his political opponents cash in on it and take advantage of his mistake or her mistake. And you can see his enemies basically doing this. They're cashing in on his sin. And so the whole ordeal is affecting him both psychologically and physiologically because he's saying his bones are in pain, not only his soul. I can remember a time in my life where I began to just in a small way, feel the psychological and physiological effects of sin catching up with you. I was in seventh grade. I received a, I received a zero on a biology test uh, because I was talking during the test. So I decided not to say anything about it at home. And I was hoping that as, as the quarter went on, it would just go away. Well, it never went away. That zero landed me my first C, first C of my life. And now I know all parents are different and, and families have different standards. For me, getting a C in seventh grade, it, it was like receiving an invitation to be summoned to the gates of hell. <laughs> it, it was horrifying. And, and, and I remember just keeping it quiet and keeping it quiet and keeping it quiet and keeping it quiet until a C in print on my report card had to follow me home one day. And the mental and physical pressure that I was under was something that as, as, as a 13-year-old boy who never really went through much tragedy in my life, it was almost overwhelming. Now, here's the thing. Since I was 13, I have done things far more wretched than covering something up for a few months. Maybe you have too. And, and maybe you can understand why David is experiencing so much anguish mentally, emotionally, even physically. 
Now, some people may wonder, has David lost all hope? Because he says something odd for David in verse 5. He says to God, in death, there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, Sheol is the pit. Sheol is like the underworld, okay? In Sheol, who will give you praise? It's not that David has lost all hope that God would remember him and be gracious to him if he dies. That's not what David is saying. I think what David is saying, the way one commentator puts it, is David understands that, that if he dies now, all his earthly endeavors come to an end. Death is the great leveler. It, death puts an end to even the good things that you're doing. Death puts an end to your worship. Death puts an end to your service and to, and to, your, and to your work and, 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 and to, for now, your relationships. Death is the great leveler. And as a king, I think David understands that nothing good would come of his death and his complete demise. If, if David deals with the full ramifications of his sin and his mistakes at this point, nothing good will come out of it. In a different way, the Apostle Paul said something similar, although he wasn't confessing sin. He says to the Philippians, his friends in chapter 1, while he was in prison for doing nothing wrong, he was being persecuted. While he was in prison, he said he was torn between dying and going to be with the Lord and staying to do good work on earth. He said in Philippians chapter 1, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. I think David understands in the midst of his agony uh, that his absence as a king, maybe his absence as a father, would be tragic at this point. So in verse 4, he pleads with his creator. He says, save me. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Now there's that word again. This word keeps coming up in the Psalms. Right? It's translated mercy sometimes. It's translated loving kindness sometimes. You see it in Psalm 23. You see this again and again in the Psalms. We've seen it already. But here it is again. The old Hebrew word was chesed. This is an important word because whenever you see this, this concept of God's steadfast love, it has to do with God's choice to love you because of his promise. Because of his covenant with his people. His love was based on his covenant with his people. So when those, that word comes up, that's a big word. David is relying on a huge concept. God's covenant love for his people. The love that God promises. The love that does not fail. Isaiah talked about it hundreds of years later. Isaiah 54. The prophet said this. Uh, quoting the words of God. God says, I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. Didn't David say, don't rebuke me in your anger? Don't discipline me in your wrath? Well, he said through Isaiah, I have sworn that I will not be angry. I will not rebuke you for the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed. But my steadfast love, there it is again, shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Covenant love was the source of David's forgiveness. David realizes that the source of his forgiveness, his hope with God, despite what he had done, was in God's covenant love. That's where David was going to get his restoration. That's where David was going to get his deliverance. He's staking his life upon God's covenant love. Now, finally, David's song of anguish ends in comfort. 
And he says in verse 9, the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. I was listening to um, Fiddler on the Roof. There's a great, the, the musical Fiddler on the Roof, there, there's this wonderful scene where Tevia and Golda are singing to one another. And the song is called, Do You Love Me? And Tevia wants to know if his wife, of all these years, after all this tragedy and all this poverty and all these kids, he wants to know, do you love me? And she's playing hard to get. They're an old traditional couple and they don't talk that way. And she won't say, I love you. Uh, but finally, at the end of the song, she admits that she really does love him. And he, so, he says, so you love me. And, and he's, the, the harmonic progression of the song and, and, and his voice bellows out in, in this release. It's, it's this release of tension. It's this musical resolution. It's a beautiful thing to listen to. Uh, Hector Berlioz in the 1800s wrote an amazing requiem, a Roman Catholic requiem. And, and there's a movement of the requiem called the lacrimosa. It literally means weeping. And there's this point in, in, in Berlioz's lacrimosa where intense harmonic dissonance. That, that's when you hear music that makes you want to hide because it sounds so tense and disruptive. Uh, there's this moment of amazing release where you have this harmonic resolution. It's just a beautiful thing to listen to. And I can see David in his anguish singing the blues remembering at last that God has heard him, that God has accepted his plea for forgiveness. And so you have this beautiful resolution, this beautiful release at the end of the psalm. The Lord has heard my plea. Despite what I've done, the Lord accepts my prayer. The believer, whether it's David or whether it's you, the believer can be certain that a loving God forgives your sin. This is something you can bank on and have absolute assurance it is true. Despite the pain of your sin that it's causing you in your mind or in your soul, despite the pain you feel in your body, despite the consequences, whatever they are relationally, or at your work or in your church or in your family or with a friend, despite the consequences, despite the knowledge of your sin, you remember it, you hate it. Other people know about it. It's affected your reputation. Despite the knowledge of your sin and the consequences of your sin and the pain of your sin, God forgives. And that's where the hope comes from. Now, the question I have is, how does David get from such agony to such relief? And ask yourself that question. When you're in such agony over something that you have done, I mean, so that it's affecting you psychologically and physically. How do you get from that real agony to a sense of relief? Where is David? Where's the transition here? How does he get from agony to relief? What do you think? And I'm looking for short answers. What do you think? Confession. There's a big word. We've already talked about that today. He is basically confessing. We don't know the details, um, but he is. Any other thoughts? You guys are always full of ideas. Yeah. She, she mentioned Romans 8, where it says nothing can separate us from the love of God. So it almost sounds like you remember. 
you, you, you remember what he has already said to you. And, and that helps you move from the anguish to the relief. Is that, is that true? Yeah, in the back. Surrender. These are good words. Remembering, surrendering, confession. I would say you probably, in order to truly confess, you have to surrender. Or is there another hand? Yeah. Experience. Can you maybe elaborate on that a little bit? Remembering, remember, remembering real forgiveness for real things that you've done. Yeah. Yeah. Was there another, was there another one? These are good. These are really good. And sometimes I ask you a more of a general or fun question. That was kind of a piercing one. So thanks for being brave and, and, um, and responding to it. I would say David makes that transition from agony to, to relief because of something I'm going to call sorrow. I think as you read this psalm, you see not only David's agony, but you see sorrow in David. More than physical and mental agony, David has grief. And I'm using grief as a synonym for sorrow. And you see it, the proof of it is expressed in frequent weeping. What does he say in verse 6? Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Sometimes you're in terrible grief because of a loss. Uh, someone dies. Uh, sometimes you're in terrible grief because of what you've done. And that's the grief. That's the sorrow that David's feeling right now. An ancient uh, church leader uh, named Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, he wrote that tears are like blood in the wounds of the soul. Uh, more recently, the, the Quaker, and his name is um, uh, the Quaker Richard Foster, he wrote a book on prayer called Prayer. And uh, he describes these types of prayers uh, that David is praying. He calls it the prayer of tears. And he said the prayer of tears is being cut to the heart over our distance and offense to the goodness of God. It is weeping over our sins and the sins of the world. It is entering into the liberating shocks of repentance. It is the intimate and ultimate awareness that sin cuts us off from the fullness of God's presence. And Paul, the apostle Paul, he, he called this godly grief. The prayer of tears, Paul called it godly grief in his letter to the, his second letter to the Corinthians. Paul said, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Some of your English translations will say sorrow, godly sorrow or worldly sorrow. So worldly grief is basically this. You're sad because you got caught. Worldly grief is you're sad because you don't like what you have to deal with as the consequences of what you've done. Or what you've said. Worldly grief is about you. Godly grief is being sad because you've grieved God. Godly grief is being sad because you see how you've hurt other people. Godly grief really isn't about you. It's about the effects of what you've done. Now, godly grief is a good thing. Maybe you and I've experienced this. Maybe you have experienced such remorse 
for something you've done or said, uh, that you've wept over it? Have you ever, like David, gotten to the point where a full recognition of what you've said or what you've done, whether it's an instance or whether it's you look back over the history of your life or, or you think about an event that took place in the past and you're looking at it from a new perspective and you weep with such remorse. But godly sorrow produces this mysterious joy that, that accompanies your grief so that you have grief for what you've done and joy at the same time. And it, it, they're happening together. That's what godly sorrow is. And where, where does the joy come from? The joy comes from knowing in your grief that God is pouring his grace out on you. That you are grief stricken for what you've done. And at the same time, God is convincing you that you're loved. And because you're loved, you're forgiven. And so it is a beautiful thing when you can weep in godly grief. Over, yes, what you've done, but in the light of God's forgiveness. John Wesley called it this. When, when John Wesley became a Christian, he said he was strangely warmed. I guess that's how they spoke back in those days. I would say godly grief feels like you are being purged of all the garbage in you. It just feels like, like all, all the wickedness and, and, and all the pain is just pouring right out of you. And it's a beautiful thing to experience. Godly grief purges you. Godly grief liberates you. And so John Newton's hymn goes on to say, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed." You know, a forgiven heart not only liberates you, but a forgiven heart, knowing you're forgiven, liberates you to liberate others. It turned out that after John Newton became a Christian, he began to hate his industry. He began to hate the slave trade. Now, for those of you who are mature Christians, let that be a lesson to us. When people come to faith in Christ, they're not transformed overnight. It takes them time to begin to see what the effects of their sin really are. And John Newton gradually became aware of the evil of his profession. He eventually forsook it. He became a pastor. He became a hymn writer. He was directly involved in the abolition movement in the United Kingdom uh, to, uh, to abolish the slave trade um, in the UK uh, regarding uh, their kingdom throughout, throughout um, the planet. And he was directly involved. He was a mentor to William Wilberforce, uh, who was a British politician in the late 1700s, early 18, 1800s, uh, who had a great impact on the abolition of the slave trade in Britain. So as you are convinced of God's forgiveness over you, it liberates you for yourself. And then through you, you begin to see that others are liberated. So our sin does have an impact. There are consequences for our sin. Uh, people may know about it. People may never forget your sin. But the fact that God forgives you for David was liberating to the point where he didn't care anymore about what people thought. And he was willing to accept the consequences in his real life. In God's forgiveness, we have freedom from sin's agonizing weight. There are consequences. And yeah, people remember. 
and people may throw it back in your face. But David says there is a freedom that is so true that it frees you from the agony. And then the sorrow goes away and the agony lifts. And what you're left with, even if it's a bad reputation, what you're left with is the assurance that God loves you and has forgiven you. And for David, that was enough. And I think it's enough for you too. Now, let me ask you a question, and I don't need a verbal answer. Just think about this. Are you more agonized over the consequences of what you've done than, and over people knowing about what you've done than over the sin itself? Ask yourself that. Are you in more agony over what the consequences are, over what people think about you than what you've actually done, than what you've actually said? And that's the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. When was the last time you wept because of your sin? Now, maybe you're saying, well, I'm not a crying type. Okay, fine. No problem. When was the last time you almost could have wept? When was the last time you thought, man, if I were a crying person, I'd weep over what I've done or what I've said? You know, uh, quite often we... um, we agonize uh, because uh, we just don't like what's happened to us, you know. Um, and, and, and so I'm not asking you, when was the last time you wept because of what happened to your reputation? When was the last time you wept because of the loss you suffered or because of the fact that you were caught in what you did? Um, no, no, I'm, I'm not saying that. We really try to minimize our sin. In sometimes very subtle ways, uh, we don't want to deal with our sin and we try and make it as small as we possibly can in our own eyes so that we don't have to deal with it. Um, we, we minimize sin in various ways. What we try to do is we try and perform and pretend, as one writer puts it. Uh, we, we try and uh, put on a good face. We try and develop our reputation. Uh, we try and impress people. Uh, you get good grades. You, you, you work hard at work. Uh, you become an exemplary citizen so that you can minimize the sin in you. You're, you live a life trying to convince other people that you're really not that bad, that you can make up for the wrongs that you've done, or you can convince people uh, that they really can trust you, that they really can believe in you. But really, that's a way of minimizing your own sin. You're just putting on an act. You're pretending. You're pretending and you're performing. Uh, another thing that some people do is, is they minimize sin by just giving into it. It's not a problem at all. It's actually a good thing. Uh, and, and then we try and justify what we've said. We try and justify what we've done. We defend ourselves and defend ourselves. And we begin to believe a lie that what's actually harmful and bad is really good and okay. Either way, ask yourself, how do I minimize my rebellious thoughts against my creator, how do I minimize the harmful things I've done and said to other people that grieve him? Minimizing sin, the Bible says, actually backfires on us. We try and, we try and avoid it, we try and downplay it, or we give into it, but it really just backfires on us. Minimizing our sin is like letting a tumor grow underneath the surface of what seems to be a very healthy body. The teacher in Proverbs chapter 28 said, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. I want to hold on a second. That doesn't just mean you hide your transgressions. It means you're unwilling to accept them. 
Maybe people have pointed it out to you, but you're unwilling to say, yeah, you're right. I admit it. I have hurt you. I have made a mess of things. I was wrong. There was a better way to handle that. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The Bible sings about the death of sin. Your sin may have brought you agony. It may have even brought you sorrow. But the Bible sings about the death of sin. The old prophet Micah in Micah chapter 7 said these words. If I can find it. Oh, I didn't put it up there. It's just on here. Micah chapter 7, the prophet says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in its steadfast love. There's that word again. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That's what the God of the Bible says about your sin. If you're willing to admit it to him. The book of Hebrews chapter 5 gives us insight into why God and how God puts sin to death. The author of Hebrews said this about Jesus Christ. He says that Jesus Christ in Jesus Christ in the days of his flesh offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. You can have even greater assurance than David did that God forgives you. You have greater assurance than David. The Christian has greater assurance than David had that God hears you and accepts your plea for forgiveness. And it's because God heard Jesus. That's why you can be sure because God heard Jesus. And when he heard Jesus crying, out to him. Jesus wasn't crying out to God because of his own sin, because he hadn't committed any sin. Jesus was crying out to God for your sin. That's Christianity. And of all the prayers that Jesus prayed for you, this may be the prayer that matters most when he hung on a cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the gospel is the fact that God heard Jesus And God responded. And God offers you forgiveness because Jesus was crushed for your sin. You will not be crushed for your sin. That's the promise of the gospel. That's why David ends this song with hope. John Newton, right before he died on his deathbed, he whispered into the ears of a friend. My memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. So when your sin finally crushes you, I don't know why I'm having a problem with this today. When you finally come to feel the full weight of the effects and the knowledge and the reputation and the pain of your sin. In light of a perfect creator. When you finally are willing to accept that friend. 
that's when God's love is going to seem most precious to you. Because that's when you're most going to realize that you need it. And you're going to know and you're going to remember that Jesus was crushed for your sin. So that you'll not have to be crushed. And the love of God in that moment assures you of his forgiveness. So my encouragement to us today is let's trust in God's promise to forgive us because of his covenant love to us. Despite the pain that our sin has caused us and each other and other people, despite the reputation that our bad decisions and our words and our actions have caused us, okay, despite the consequences of our sin that we have to live with every day, Let's trust him in faith that he means what he says. I will forgive you. Father, forgive them. And he does. Let's pray. Father, I'm going to just going to quote these words uh, from another old hymn. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Thank you that there is no pit so deep that you are unwilling to go in and rescue us out of. Thank you, Father, that your love, that your grace is not prejudiced against us because of being too wicked or or, or diving too deep out of your presence. Thank you that you have rescued even me. Uh, Father, I I ask that you would give us the faith to trust you like David did when when we are grief-stricken and and in tremendous inner conflict because of the consequences of what we've done. Uh, Lord, I think that's a gift. I pray that you would give each of us the gift of seeing our sin, of acknowledging it, and bringing it before you in confession, and then repenting with changed lives. Thank you that you heard Jesus' prayer for our forgiveness. And we're going to live by the fact that you answered his prayer with a yes. Amen.